Hey, what's up? It's Alex Morgan. And for me, the start of the new year is all about committing to you from day one. Body Armor's got you and here to help you commit to your fitness goals. Buy any Body Armor products at your local store and Body Armor will give you 50% cash back to put towards your fitness journey. Now through March 31st, commit to fit with Body Armor Sports Drink. Visit www.bacommittofit.com for full rules. And shop now at retailers nationwide. The military historian, U.S. Army veteran, educator, and award-winning author Mike Guardia is back on the show today. He's going to sit in on a couple of episodes here. Uh, he's back on the show to talk about his latest book, Fox Bat Tales, The MiG-25 in Combat. I think I'm saying that right. He'll tell me. Uh, it's a follow-up to Wings of Fire, a combat history of the F-15, and Tomcat Fury, a combat history of the F-14. So we went from 14 to 15 to... 25, but it's a MIG versus an F. I think that's what it is. Uh, but Mike is the author of a number of books. Uh, <laughs> go to his website, MikeGuardia.com. You can get them all on Amazon. He's written children's books and also a number of books uh, following Hal Moore. Uh, also, uh, Russell W. Volkman. Uh, we've got Donald D. Blackburn. I just go check it all out. Don Starry, General Don Starry. Uh, so again, MikeGuardia.com. We're also proud to have him as one of our experts here on Big Blend Radio. So Mike, Military Mike, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Lisa. Hey, Nancy. It's great to be back on the show. I am doing hey. great. Cool. It's always good to have you on the show. And, you know, I was just saying at the introduction that you're like our history geek. <laughs> oh, mean, thank you. you know, <laughs> and it goes beyond military history, right? Because pretty much all history has some kind of battle in there. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And now the education. Yeah, that's that's mm. the thing. And then you're also an educator, a teacher, too. And I wanted to bring that up because mm-hmm. I know you're going to sit in our second segment with Frank Toms. Um, so that's – and you just got your master's in education, right? I did. That cool. was actually hey, a second master's for me. Oh, second wow. master's. See? Yeah, he's mm-hmm. a geek. I mean that in a positive <laughs> way. I like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Oh, well, it's a term so, of endearment. It yeah. is. It is. Um, Fox Bat Tales, the MiG-25 in combat. Let me just go girly right away. <laughs> it's all oh about boy. the name. Okay. So Fox Bat, we went from Tomcat to Fox Bat. <laughs> where, where does the Fox Bat come from? Okay. So this was actually a bit of a change of pace for me. Um, I uh, had never really considered doing any type of title on Soviet aviation, um, mm-hmm. until I came across the MiG-25. Um, now, I, I had always been fascinated by Cold War airplanes, and I had always been fascinated by military aviation in the broadest sense. And that's really what prompted me to write the books on the F-14 and the F-15. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, as I started to expand my knowledge on um, what – crates the the latter-day soviet air force had put out i found that there was surprisingly little information out there on on the mig-25 and i was surprised at first because you know for as much as the mig-25 has done throughout its history and for as much of an alarm as it sounded within 
the Western intelligence community, I was surprised that there hadn't been more that had been written about it. And the few books that were out there uh, have long since been out of print. And, hmm. uh, you know, you're lucky if you can catch a, a stray copy for hmm. a few hundred dollars even. Wow. wow. But is wow. this because yeah. the military might not want things to be written about what they use in combat? I'm sorry, say that again? <laughs> I said, is is it possible that this is because the military would prefer that things not be written about? That, you know, like uh, specific airplanes and, and guns and such that they use in warfare, they try to keep that kind of under wraps? Well, I, I don't think it's so much that they want to keep it under wraps. I just think that... Uh... I think that getting access to the information, even if it's not classified, it, it just takes a lot of uh, takes a lot of red tape and a mm. lot of jumping through hoops, you know, really just to get your hands on something that's credible. And then yeah. again, many of the sources that are out there, even government sources, you know, sometimes you have to take them with a grain of salt because one government will say one thing and uh, one agency will say something completely different. Mm-hmm. That sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, that's, that does. <laughs> but the MIG, so it's a MIG, and it's interesting. So, Cap, and, and I do want to get into this because you think this is going to be some, like, crazy, cool airplane or uh, aircraft, I should say. And it turns out to be, like, super fast, but maybe not as, like, grand as everybody thought. But what does MIG stand for? So MIG is actually in abbreviation for Mikoyan Ugurevich, which was the design bureau that created the MiG series aircraft. So wow. essentially what they did is they took the uh, first two letters of Mikoyan and then, and then the last letter of, or uh, excuse me, they took the first letter of uh, the second fellow's last name, Gurevich, mm. and they put it together to make MiG. And those were, those were the two men of the design bureau and, uh, Hmm. that really made the MiG aircraft what it was. And uh, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. he passed away in 64, and then Mikoyan, he, he passed away a, a few years later. But uh, but their legacy design bureau get carried on for years afterwards. Now it belongs to a different hmm. company, but, uh, but, but the company is still manufacturing aircraft with the MiG prefix. So wow. is that because of the speed that it can go, that they're – continuing on with it well not so much the speed itself but you know just the overall reliability and the the maneuverability of the planes and uh Mm -hmm. you know it's uh you know of course i say reliability and maneuverability but you know that's only through the lens of the soviet and Russian standards, because you know, according to the West, uh, you know there were uh, there were quite a few planes that we produced that were far outpacing and outturning anything that came out of the Warsaw Pact. Mm. And standing, mm. I was just going to say, if you were going to put it into car terms, like um, would it be a Ferrari or a, a Ford? <laughs> oh, well, let's see. I think in terms of speed, it would definitely be a Ferrari. In terms okay. of reliability, it would probably be more akin to a Hugo. Mm. Oh. Huh. Now, would you put it in the Daytona, like a Daytona race or like a NASCAR race? Um, if the only thing it could do would go fast, yeah. 
Um, but mm. you know, if I wanted something mm. that could uh, be able to turn quickly or stop quickly mm. on a dime, uh, yeah, there's no way that I would put it up against anything else. Yeah, because isn't mm. it pretty bulky? This this plane turns out to be. It, it's heavy and it kind of guzzled gas. It was it was a hungry yeah. a hungry beast. <laughs> it sure was. It sure was. It could mm. fly at speeds that were uh, up to that point deemed unreachable for any tactical fighter. And uh, yeah, going fast was about the only thing that it could do. And mm. uh, it, it, the pilot had to be careful though, because even if he accelerated the engine to its absolute maximum speed the plane could only sustain that speed for maybe a few minutes before it would burn out the engine. Oh, nice. oh wow. So you ran the risk. Yeah. So you ran the risk of, you know, turning this, uh, turning this big, very expensive airplane in to nothing more than a glorified glider. If, uh, you, you know, you burned out the engine while you were in flight. Oh, oh wow. And if you're that's in the enemy kinda... zone, that could not be good for you. You know, No. that's, that's so so it so it wasn't really a dog fighter, but you talk about it being an interceptor. And so can yes. we talk about what an interceptor does? I mean it's almost is it kinda like, hey, you can see dog fights are going on, but I'm gonna like here, look at me over here so Get that in the it, middle. it can take you out. Kind of. So the big <laughs> difference between a fighter and an interceptor is that an interceptor Really, it's designed to do only one thing. It's designed to go fast. It's designed to outrun anything that might catch it. And it's really designed to um, interdict any planes that are encroaching over a, over, a, over a home country's territorial airspace and be able to engage it from beyond visual range. So really what an interceptor is designed to do it's designed to intercept heavier aircraft you know try to identify whether it's friendly or not and uh you know be able to uh be able to escort said aircraft away from friendly airspace and uh if you know if it is identified as a hostile aircraft then Mm -hmm. that interceptor can engage whatever hostile aircraft is out there from beyond visual range, because if, uh, you know, if it's going up against say an air superiority fighter that is uh, encroaching territorial airspace, well, it can't get into a turning fight with, a, with, with a dog fighter. So instead it has to uh, be able to pick up an, uh, an enemy dog fighter on its radar and be able to uh, fire a missile from, from beyond visual range so that uh, no dog fight will ensue. And if a dogfighter mm. starts coming after it, the interceptor has to be able to get away from the fight quicker than the plane that's pursuing it. Wow. And so it sounds like Star Trek. I know. It does. <laughs> I, I want I want I want it's to save her. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I want to save her. Pretty cool. I know. With in writing this, I mean, you're saying there's not that much out there about it. So, I mean, it's got to have been hard to get the information, but were you also surprised um you know, because it seemed like, you know, the Americans were excited to get their hands on this, um, you know, this this aircraft, Yet, it, and then a little disappointed later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was quite a lot that surprised me about it, because when I started researching the MiG-25, uh, what I knew about it was pretty much just... Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better... 
you really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. In the broadest general terms, I knew that it came about during the mid-60s. I knew that it was breaking airspeed records for both East and West and that simply the appearance of the MiG-25 alarmed a lot of people within the Western intelligence community. And I knew that uh, after they finally got their hands on a copy of the MiG-25, that it turned out to be more or less an aeronautical paper tiger. And it was, it was Mm. a big, it was a big revelation to, you know, anyone who had any involvement with the, American military that, hey, this uh, plane that we thought was a, uh, that that we thought was a versatile fighter bomber is really nothing more than a poorly designed airframe with an oversized motor. There's only one thing that this plane can do and it can go fast. It, uh, it's, it has a higher weight than we expected, has a lower thrust to weight ratio than we expected. And uh, there's really, you know, and if this were to go into a classic dogfight with any fighter in the West, uh, you know, there's no question that it would be the loser. Wow. And that's when they realized, okay, we were wrong about this aircraft from the beginning, and we were actually on a wild goose chase. You know, we were chasing ghosts thinking that, uh, you know, thinking that this was going to be the next supreme Soviet fighter, when really all it Mm. is is just an interceptor. And it's really qualitatively not much better than any interceptor that we have here in the West. But they did praise it for a few things that uh, some Western planes couldn't do. One of the things that they praised was the Smirch radar, which had a double band wavelength. And uh, what that means is that it made the MiG-25's radar essentially invulnerable to jamming. And that was something that no That's cool. that was something that no Western airborne radar radar could do at the time Hmm. that's pretty cool actually yeah i mean and and at the yeah and at the same time i wonder if the russians were kind of dangling it in front of america going check it out haha we have this and kind of you know what i mean i mean there was Mm -hmm. it was what you say july 1967 it was at the moscow moscow air show that they unveiled it right and um did they do that to kind of show the Americans, hey, look what we have, you can't have it, and um, maybe they had something hidden that you didn't know what was going on? You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just right. wondering. On yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that ongoing game of geopolitical brinksmanship, I mean, that was ongoing mm. for both sides. And what yeah. the U.S. found out later was that the prototype MiG-25s that had broken those airspeed records a decade earlier – those prototypes had been built from special materials simply for the sake of trying to break those airspeed records, that if you had taken those prototypes and put them on the front lines, they never would have functioned in combat. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. wow. So this is, this is, it gets in, okay, so then, I mean, this plane goes on, you know, a plane or, you know, aircraft, I should say. So it goes on, and what, it's interesting because it did go into fights in, in you know, 
um, the Soviet Afghan war. I mean, it went out, you know, all over. So it did have a life, but was interesting to me was how America got a hold of it. And um, the story with Lieutenant Victor Belenko, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, what happened uh-huh. with him, because he, he like said, that's it. I'm, I'm defecting and going to Japan. And that was, you know, cause what was interesting to me was he really, you think about someone who looked like he was dedicated to the communist party and communist regime, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, but he's like, I'm, I'm bailing, I'm out of here. But he didn't take anything with him other than three things. It's the, fly, the pilot's manual, his notebook, and his military ID. That's it. I mean, that's a true bail. <laughs> I'm like, I'm out of here. Right. When he, when he oh, left. But he, so absolutely. He, but he took the plane. And yeah, that's the big so thing. How, but is, he, how does that happen where um, um, we don't shoot it down when it's gone beyond what it's supposed to go beyond? Do, well, this do is we a, not? Yeah, Russia. He went from Russia to Japan. Mm-hmm. But how? So <laughs> it, it, it really <laughs> is. Yeah. yeah. So it really like, is a story where truth is stranger funny. than fiction. Um, hmm. Because it's pretty much like you said, Blanco, by the time he was 29, uh, he had had enough of the Communist Party. You know, his home life mm-hmm. was falling apart. He'd grown very disenchanted with the communist regime. You know, he said, why am I even still here? How, how much longer am I going to dedicate myself to living this lie? So um, what he ended up doing was he said, okay, well, I, as, as a MiG-25 pilot assigned to this particular, uh, assigned to this particular unit of the Soviet air defense forces, I fly these routine aerial patrols over the sea of Japan Sometimes I'm the mm-hmm. flight leader and sometimes I'm not. So for this particular sortie that's going up today, what I'm going to do, since I'm not the flight leader, I'm going to fall behind the lead formation. And uh-huh. I'm going to I'm going to gradually space myself out from the main body of the flight group. And then after that happens, after I think I'm far enough out of visual range, I'm going to drop down below the radar range. Because uh-huh. you, your standard surface-to-air radar uh, can only – can only see probably, you know, it, and it also depends on the radar, but it can probably only see about 500 feet to 1,000 feet as its minimum engagement envelope. So if you fly below that, our radar is never going to see you coming. Oh. So what he did was he was he <laughs> fell behind his flight leader, and then he descended down to a mere 100 feet above sea level, 100 feet. Wow. That's and. Nice. Yeah, and mm. using nothing more than his own dead reckoning and and oh. uh, his own muscle memory from some of the maps that he had looked at, he said, wow. okay, if I think I stay on a course this for about two hours, four hours, or however long it is, I'm eventually going to see the Japanese mainland. So skimming above the sea at only 100 mm. feet wow. above sea level, you know, he guns the engine uh, of his MiG-25 to almost as fast as it will go, you know, you know, just scraping across and, and buzzing the buzzing across the top of various fishing boats. And then after a few hours, and then after a few hours, he determines, okay, I'm probably, I'm probably within, probably within range of the Japanese coastline. Wow. So at some point he elevates his plane from a hundred feet of altitude to 20,000 feet. And when he hits the 20,000 foot mark, that's when he populates on the Japanese radar station. Uh-huh. You know, and uh, at, at first, at first, the Japanese, uh, the Japanese Air Force, 
they don't know what to make of it. They see this incoming fast mover that has apparently wow. come out of nowhere. And they say, okay, we don't know what this is, but we don't think it can be good. And it's they scramble to Japanese <laughs> effort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they scramble these two Japanese F4s from the Chitosi Air Base, and yeah. uh, it, it, it's it's a comedy of errors at that point because those two Japanese planes couldn't find them. Wow. One because Belenko was traveling too fast, mm. and two because because the Japanese F4s, you know, their radar systems weren't really optimized for an interceptor role anyway. Ah. And after after a few hours in the air, both of these Japanese F4s were roaming around Japanese airspace, and they're radio and and hmm. they're radioing back to their uh, back to their home station. Hey, boss, we can't find them. But <laughs> but by that time, but 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 by that time, Blanco is not only inside Japanese airspace; he's also uh, he's he's also uh, well over the island of Hokkaido. Now, during this flight, he gets a little bit disoriented, and he was trying to go to the nearest Japanese airbase he could find, but because he had vectored off course a little bit, because remember, he didn't have any of his instrumentations that could work at a low-level flight. So he, uh, so he starts looking around and says, okay, well, I'm lost over Japanese airspace. I know I'm over the island of Hokkaido. I'm probably miles off course from the nearest Japanese military air station, but I think I'm close enough to the to the Hokodate airport and eventually he finds that civilian airport and says okay well this is an air station I'm running pretty low on fuel so I guess I'm going to land and wow. uh, you, know, you know the uh, the, air, the air traffic controllers on the ground there at first they at the first they see his airplane they don't know what it is but they're like okay we're not we weren't scheduled to receive any small aircraft today I wonder what that is and uh, without even without even contacting the air traffic controllers, he uh, he, he vectors in behind a departing 727 and uh, lands his MiG-25 on the tarmac. Cool. And cool. and the thing is, is that the uh, is, is that the uh, is that the length of the runway is too short to accommodate the uh, takeoff and landing speed of the MiG-25. So he skids mm. off the runway. He plows through the dirt, and about 700 or so feet beyond the edge of the runway, that's when his plane skids to a halt. And by the time he shut off his engine, he had only 30 seconds of fuel left. Wow. Oh, wow. This would make a great movie. I know, dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you started started researching this, you had to have been like, man, I'm on to like a cool story here. (laughs) You must have tripped out with this. Or did you write it knowing yeah. did I mean, did you pick this because you knew about this? Because he's rogue, well, just like I the would... other dudes you write about. <laughs> Generals are like, yeah, well, I'm going for it. Yeah, I, I I had a passing familiarity with Blanco beforehand, but I didn't mm. really know the extent of his defection. And wow. when his MiG-25 skidded to a halt, um, you know, everybody on the ground in Hokodate, you know, they, they of course, were all freaking out. You know, the air yeah. traffic controllers were saying, oh, my God, what's the Soviet plane doing here? Mm, Is bet. this a precursor to an invasion? <laughs> and so they not only notified the Japanese military. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. 
And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Terry, they also, they, they also notify the local precinct of the Japanese National Police. Ooh. And and before the cops get there, however, um, every Japanese civilian within about a mile and a half radius, they start descending on this airplane because they want to see, you know, hey, what's the Soviet plane doing here? Mm. And poor Belenko, you know, he's regaining his bearings. He gets out of the cockpit, sees this swarm of Japanese civilians coming towards him, and I think yes. in a state of panic, he just draws his he uh, he, he he draws his sidearm and he fires two oh. warning shots into the <gasps> air. Whoa. And hmm. and the civilians scatter, but the local police don't. They actually take him into custody, hmm. and they say you are under arrest on two charges: one for for uh, violating our territorial airspace, and two for hmm. illegally discharging a firearm. Hmm. Yeah. But only a few minutes after he's arrested, he says, "My name is Victor Belenko. Uh, I, I am defecting from the Soviet Union, and I would like political asylum in the U.S." Cool. Hmm. And the very next place they take him is the CIA office. <laughs> there you go. There it is. <laughs> oh my gosh, there it goes. And that's so this that's is a interesting. Great movie. I know. I think come on, Mike, you know. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Hal Moore has a movie, so you gotta have one for Belenko. I'm just saying. Um, you know, just this is just I mean, you've gotta think, you know, we talk about this on history shows all the time, how the bravery of going, um, you know, like on the Mayflower or you're going to a new land because you're not happy where you are, but that power to do that bravery, you know, I think it is bravery to be able to defect and do what he did. I mean, it's like, it's, it's all or nothing. And I really appreciate mm-hmm. that when people are able to push themselves beyond instead of being unhappy all the time, you know what I mean? It's like, wow. Okay. I'm going to put my freedom, but it is interesting. This whole, I want political asylum was America mm-hmm. more about, I mean, I don't know if they could do that now. Do you think, I mean, it's, it's kind of now we have you know, issues with that happening. Now everyone's in, you know, in an unrestful position about it in our country and around the world. And um, it's just interesting back then that he could even go, Hey, I want political asylum in Japan. Um, it's just an, a different time, right? When you look back in uh, history. Well, well, these days it really depends on where it is you're defecting from and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what value, if yeah, any, you, know? you could provide <laughs> as a result of you your know? defection. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really about what you know. If you don't know so, anything, nobody wants you. But if you know something, they're like, come on down. Yeah, like Julian Sand. <laughs> what's his name? What's his uh, What's his name? I want to say Julian Sand. That's the actor. I'm like stuck in the 80s. Um, what's, what's his name? Mm. What the, oh well, he's been 
bumped around, like from Switzerland to all these kinds of places, all kinds of places. Oh, um, I know who you're talking about. Um, oh, gosh, Julian I, Assange. Yeah, Assange. Um, yeah, Julian yeah, Assange. Yeah, Assange. like he's yeah. been. Yeah. So that, but that's interesting. You say, Mike, about what is your value? So here he has the manual, and he has his notebook, mm-hmm. his flight notebook. And his military ID, so then people know, okay, you know, this is who I am. Um, mm-hmm. And you have his photo in your book too. I'm like, I thought it was a young Vladimir Putin when I Putin when I saw it. Oh. Like really, it was like an immediate. Like I was like, oh, he looks, and it wasn't. <laughs> no, I'm serious. He does. It's just his eyes and everything. Um, but he's not him. Wow. Uh, everybody. But <laughs> the um, what he had on him. What happens with that? Because that's part of his value, not only being a pilot and being able to even fly into Japan, how he did it. That's some value right there. But here he is with the goods and the plane. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, wouldn't Japan want to, I know they took him to the CIA office, but in a way, wouldn't Japan go, hey, we want that info. Right. So the Japanese defense ministry, they were not, they were actually none too happy about having that MiG-25 in their country. And they said, okay, well, you have the Soviet Union that's only a few hundred miles off our coast. We mm-hmm. really don't want to keep this plane here for too long, but we recognize the intelligence value. So uh, soon after Blanco said that he wanted to – that he wanted to defect to the U.S. and that he was looking for political asylum – Uh, They called every American aerospace contractor who was in the country at the time, along with uh, along with a number of CIA operatives. And (laughs) they all descended upon the plane and and they took it to uh, and and they took it to a government facility there in Japan and said, "Okay, well, we have it. We know the Soviets are going to want it back and they're going to want it back pretty quick. So we have X amount of hours to deconstruct this plane, do every single analysis we can on it. Find out what it is that makes the MiG-25 tick, and mm. you know then and then a- after we're done deconstructing it, we're going to reconstruct it, and then we're going to give it back to the Soviets. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Wow, funny. <laughs> Tinker toys. <Right. laughs> mm-hmm. So what that they ended up doing was they ran a series of tests on the aircraft, and they tested everything. They tested everything from the onboard avionics to the engine itself. You know, they were doing static tests to see how fast the engine could go and, you know, how long it could, uh, how long it could operate before burning mm-hmm. itself out. And I really have to give credit to the Japanese government. They were very crafty in how they gave it back to the Soviets. They said because the plane was damaged when it landed, and it was, they said, we're going to have to give it back to you in crates. So they crated the oh. plane, and it was in, I don't know, half a dozen crates or so, you know, that that they put all of the various components of the plane within. And then they shipped it back to the USSR. Well, the Soviets, for their, for their part, they weren't dummies. You know, as soon as mm. they got the crates, they opened them up, and they said, okay, well, you know, it's not hard for us to put two and two together. You know, they've probably tampered with this plane. We just need mm. to find out what it is they know and how it's going to affect our own defense posture. So mm. one of the first yeah. things that they found out was that the Americans had tampered with the Smirch radar. And how they found that out was because they found foreign fuses and foreign transistors in the radar. And they oh. said to themselves, okay, it, the Americans obviously didn't know how to operate this, and they broke it when they were <laughs> testing it. And they tried to make some hasty repairs and hope that we wouldn't notice. Well, you know, we see these transistors and these fuses, and if you zero in really close, you can see that it's made in Indiana. 
No. <laughs> wow. I got them from my house. <laughs> yeah. wow. like somebody goes downstairs in the basement and takes the fuses out of the fuse box and delivers them to NASA. <laughs> I know, but now what? Well, I mean, was it really that they just they did? You know, were they? Did they take him for a reason, or was it that they messed it up, just like what the Russians thought? Well, they um, they were trying to test the capabilities of the radar, and because they didn't know how to operate the radar, they ended up blowing some fuses and transistors in it. Oh, so they really did, yeah. Right, and so so then it became a question of. Oh gosh, you know what are we going to do now? You know we can't hide the fact that we've broken it, so let's try and find a replacement and hope that they don't notice. <laughs> but okay. isn't any country in the same predicament, like the same scenario, would do the same thing? I mean, you know, if you, if your aircraft gets caught by another country, they're looking it over before they return it. I mean, wouldn't just any country would do that? Yeah. Right. So uh, that's why a lot of our machines these days have some kind of self-destruct mechanism. And, oh, wow. Cool. Uh, that's, yeah, that's actually what a lot of our modern-day tanks have. Um, when, I was, when I was a tank platoon leader at Fort Bliss, uh, a lot of the newer series M1 Abrams that we had, you know, had, um, you know, ha- had, had some self-destruct mechanisms on board that would wow. essentially – that would essentially destruct all of the hmm. onboard electronics. So, you know, that if, if the tank were captured by a foreign government, the, uh, the tank commander or any crewman aboard the vehicle could press that self-destruct button and it would hmm. essentially fire all of the electronical components within there. And, you know, then instead of wow. having something actionable that an enemy government could use, they would just have the, you know, hollow shell of a tank with, what used to be all of the innards of the electronics there. You mean that's, that's how I very, feel about Facebook? Like I'm no, disabled. That's very, that's very <laughs> James Bond. That's very I know. James Bond. It's cool. I, I love this. This is cool. So then <laughs> the, the, the the MIG, I like this, the MIG-25. I, I feel like it's almost like a rock band name, you know? Yeah. Um, and Foxbat. I feel like That'd this be could a great be like a, an, it'd be a great album, Foxbat Tales. I like that. Um, with this now, I mean, it continues on. America gets a little intel, but disappointing. And it continues on and ends up in fighting in the Middle East. It goes off and continues on its in its life and journeys. Mm-hmm. It sure oh, does. Wow. I mean, it's in the twilight of its life now. Um, but, you know, for for the role that it was really intended to fulfill, which is that of an interceptor and a, a reconnaissance aircraft, uh, it it did excel in those roles and it had a very long service life. You know, one of the longest Hmm. really of any third generation military aircraft that was out there, you know, and Hmm. uh, even though the Russians have retired it, and even though a lot of the former Soviet republics have retired it, it, it's still, it's still hanging on to a bit of its life in in service in the middle East. Hmm. That's interesting how everything turns around, you know, and how armor and artillery and you know or you know ammunitions and you know, fighter jets and everything has they have these international careers and some get sold. You know we were talking about that before with you about like okay this fighter jet now belongs to you know Iran <laughs> here now goes from here to here. 
And so it's interesting to me how that happens between countries and, you know, we're all friends and then we're not friends and oopsie, I shouldn't have told you that, <laughs> you know? So right. it's, a, it's well, an interesting yeah. thing. I, mm-hmm. You've taught us so much, um, you know, all these fighter jets and everything that, you know, you've, you've showcased on the show and in your books, uh, just amazing, the stories of generals. But I feel like, you know, just the same thing as horses, horses in battle, um, they have a story too. We're doing a segment on our Wednesday show, Mike, about dogs in in World War II and how they played mm-hmm. a role in in uh, World War II and, and in battles and everything. So I feel like, you know, what you're doing with the aircraft is like telling the general's story in a way. You know, you talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the different generals like Hal Moore. Um, but at the same time, I think we do have to look at what happened to the individual aircraft. It's They have a story too. I know they're not living, but they are part of, you know, life and the story of life. So I thank you for that. I think that's really cool. What's next, though? Because you're you're nonstop, man. The Energizer <laughs> Buddy of military history. <laughs> what's, yeah. what's the next book? Okay. Uh, so actually have um, actually have two on the horizon that I'm working on. Mm. Uh, one is complete, and it is going to be uh, it is going to be released this December, December 14th, I believe. And uh, the book coming out this December is closely related to the topic of the MiG-25, except if we wind the clocks back about 20 years earlier, uh, this book is focusing on the air war over the Eastern Front in World War II, where the Red Air Force was taking on the Luftwaffe. Mm, Uh, So that book is coming out in December. And uh, then the other two projects that are uh, currently in the works both of which I, I I hope to have I hope to have complete by December. Uh, one is that biography on Paul Gorman, and mm. then the other is the uh, the other is the uh, is the companion piece to Fires of Babylon, telling the story of the Battle of seventy three Easting, but from the perspective of Ghost Troop instead of Eagle Troop. Wow, mm. man, you're rocking wow. it. Well, everyone, again, keep up with Mike at MikeGuardia.com. He's also got pages on BlendRadioAndTV.com. Uh, you can hear his, his different interviews with us over the years, literally, and also on NationalParkTraveling.com because he sent us out to follow in the footsteps of generals, and that we have. Um, I, it's I interesting. Even tell, wow. I'm, in, I'm in general overload right now with all the historic places we've been to lately, Gettysburg, Harper's Ferry, um, mm. uh, all these battle sites, and Gettysburg – Totally, that all I could say when we were there is like I'm overwhelmed. I like total overwhelm of you know all the positions of how everybody was, all the different regiments from all over the country, all the way to California, and how I mean to finally be where Pickett's charge happened. I was like, no, like we've talked about this on shows for years, and to finally be there, it was mm-hmm. one of those just moments you'll never forget. Have you been there, Mike, to Gettysburg? I have. Mm. Did you feel overwhelmed? It, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about with that, like, wow, <laughs> how was the battle was it's so hard spread not out? To. Yeah, yeah, it's hard not to. You know, and I think of the the commanders and you know the the generals giving the orders and the responsibility um, of the orders because people are going to die because you gave an order 
or people mm-hmm. are going to be saved because you gave an order. You or know, the, the, yeah, you know, so it's like thinking about uh, firefighters and first responders and uh, the responsibility that has to weigh on them. And I mean, it's easy, it's easy for us to overlook that. You can read the book, watch a film, but the actual, you know, sometimes I'm like, what's going on in the mind of the person who gives the order? Because, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the ones who kind of stall and get scared to give the order or not ready to give the order, and maybe they should have done it quicker, you, you know, I, it, it, that blows my mind. That You know, I'm like, wow, I think I just want to go water plants in the garden now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because well, it, it's, it's, it's a heavy responsibility, and I think sometimes we can overlook that or forget about it, how heavy mm-hmm. that responsibility has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's why everyone should read Mike's books. <laughs> so go to MikeGuardia.com <laughs> and all his books are on Amazon, so you can get them there. Uh, Mike, are you ready for our next segment? Yes, We're going to talk about oh. yeah, living uh, behind the red veil uh, in Russia. So uh, stay tuned, everyone. Uh, we've got Frank Tom's joining us next, also an educator and author. But we're going to play some music. Take a music break. It's called Wheel of Destiny. Hey, Mike, before we play Wheel of Destiny. Um, I, I chose this because you think about that, you know, how destiny and, and you know, in being in the military and history and everything. But, um, you know, in the aircraft, you know, we have a steering wheel. What would that be in a fighter jet like or the MiG? Would that still be like a a steering wheel? No, um, it would. I well, knew it. You could either call it a <laughs> throttle or you could call it a stick. So oh. that's how they really are not doing. It looks like a thing, but it's not. Okay. I knew it. <laughs> I knew I'd be wrong. <laughs> All right. Here is Wheel of Destiny. This is by our friend James Saunders out of South Africa near Cape Town. And uh, keep up with him at James Saunders Musician. And that's Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, uh, James Saunders. So here it is. Enjoy. And then we're going to chat with Frank Tomes in a few seconds.
What shooting stars made for? 